Space Cave. Far out in the end of the universe, the endless ends of it, far away from all the stresses and headaches and worries of the world, where you exist just as a collection of atoms, willfully gathered into a collection that formulates you, and the idea of you, and perhaps your consciousness. There's not traffic, there's not annoying people. Not all the world's problems. There's just you existing quietly out in this cave, deep in the nether regions of space. Welcome. A big warg to all of you. And if you like science, you're going to like this episode. Sometimes you, you think of the broad sense of science and what exactly are they doing? Are they just researching things? What are we trying to accomplish? And this episode is one of the things that science is doing that I think will blow your mind. It's incredible that it's even happening, and to get a chance to sit down and talk with someone that is doing it, pretty exciting. So we shared some uh, citrus wheat from Angel City Brewery right here in Los Angeles. This is part one with Dave Aveline. Enjoy. (laughs) That would have been a good one to start with. Yeah, just going into random. (laughs) We have begun. And we have this citrus wheat from Angel City Brewing that came out of a big jug. And uh, we didn't get to do any Foley work for this one and pour it into our cups. So oh. people will just have to trust that we do, in fact, have it. Yeah. Um, we'll have to do a clink. We could do a, oh, sure. maybe a... Hey, there we go. Cheers. All right. Good to have you. And I forgot to ask you before we started, is it Aveline? How do you say your last name? You could do that. That's fine. <laughs> Aveline. Aveline. But, uh, but it is French in... in its origins, so Aveline. I don't usually correct anybody if okay. I hear Aveline. Okay, I, Aveline was my second guess, and I feel like every time there's been like a uh, something that ends in Steen or Stein, I've guessed wrong. I oh, said Steen, they go, that's Stein. Oh, right, right. And so I should. Ha- I'm going to start guessing the hard, the harder Ein. Um, oh, if you just kind of yeah, turn it into exaggerate it into some like you're trying to, you know, be get that exact uh the way would it be a german pronunciation of stein or something oh, try yeah. to hit the <laughs> stein <laughs> yeah really is it aveline <laughs> <laughs> i've even gotten lini and i don't know why like avellini like oh what? i could see that that would have been why would you really uh, yeah if I, yeah but uh the e at the end you'd say e i don't know i don't, I don't know yeah i'm just at that point i'd be reaching really trying to guess if the first two didn't work out i go whoo <laughs> and then I guess Avellini would have been the third. Sure. I even got, um, in high school, there was a Spanish teacher, of all things, that wanted, he said, Aveline. He just liked <laughs> to make it very aggressive or straight. I don't know. Hmm. It became a joke. But then, of course, other students thought that's pretty funny. So I, for a while, was Aveline. 
Yeah. Just like a line as the, and that's not right at all. <laughs> oh, I thought it but was I like care, separating honestly. it like Ave and line, like abbreviation for Avenue, but still pronouncing right, right, it Ave. Right, right. But Ave. But it's line. strange from a. Spa- it wasn't because he's a Spanish teacher. Just he's just a character, right? <laughs> yeah, so he just a- decided he would pronounce different people's names in a mm-hmm. pretty odd way. So I wonder how many people have nicknames for life that were started by a teacher, by some, just some random teacher. Yeah, just throwing it out there. <laughs> <laughs> woodchuck like, my name is woodward <laughs> and then they were just woodchuck for life yeah i don't know that's not that part of a reach now i'm fascinated with this fictional character of uh woodchuck, <laughs> woodchuck. <laughs> so you're here in a certain um well in a large part i guess thanks to rachel chuck your partner yes yes rachel was on here some months ago yeah yeah and you guys are a uh that must be a pretty interesting household to be in very highly educated very intelligent house to be uh, walking well, around in that's we're we're goofy we're not we don't seem that intelligent in our house <laughs> <laughs> we have a pretty good sense of humor and and mm-hmm. keep it pretty down we, to earth down but, to but earth, i mean but we both um i think part of it too the draw i mean at least for me so she does uh animal behavior uh research and um and for me that was always sort of a a pa- like a, a passion of mine is animals and nature and all that. So I now get to kind of live vicariously through her mm-hmm. and get to hear about the kind of science that she's doing and yet, you know, get to do my sort of non-personal science, which is physics and technology stuff. So you don't really have that, that same element of like a, a living creature being mm-hmm. involved. But so I, I get, I get a lot out of that. I don't know if it works the other way around. <laughs> she might just have to listen to me. Uh, battle on about yeah, random physics, but because your your job, you're here sort of on behalf of her speaking. Not necessarily your your views expressed are your own. Yes, but the work <laughs> that you do for Cal C A L, yeah, uh, it, it works in conjunction with the space station. That's right. So Cal is this stands for the Cold Atom Laboratory, um, Cold Atom Lab if for short, or Cal is even shorter. Um, and basically, the idea here was uh, about five six years ago. They were they were there was a call, an open thing that they wanted to find other specific sort of science or fundamental physics um, research that would benefit greatly from microgravity. Mm-hmm. And so it's in orbit, ISS, mm-hmm. um, and it's in a sort of permanent free fall condition where you get this, we call it microgravity, meaning down in the sub, you know, 10 to the minus six would be a mic- micro level, and mm-hmm. that would be. Um, uh, a place where then when we do these experiments and let go of the atoms that are trapped, we can get into how how some of that works later. But um, you can then study them for a long amount of time because they're going to hover there in a sense. They're not going to fall relative to the instrument where you've just produced them. So um, it was proposed and then it was supposed to be, it was kind of on a fast track um, in that we would take certain risk and use certain commercial items and stuff. So basically this is a, a lab that's usually the size of a room kind of jammed into a, uh, well, hopefully carefully jammed into a, um, like a ice chest size, um, container. And then it's remote controlled from the ground. And we basically operate these lasers and magnetic fields and things to, to control the atoms up there. And so it's, um, the idea is to get very, very cold little vapor clouds of these, of these rubidium and potassium atoms and study quantum physics and, <laughs> and all sorts of so that kind of stuff. I was reading about it and 
everything you just mentioned is was, was in some way kind of in the article, and I was like, I I get it in principle, the idea of getting stuff so cold that the atoms cease to kind of, uh, or the, they're not moving around as much. And the, but they were using terms like lasers and electromagnets, mm-hmm. and then in and then in quotes as a knife, oh, something yeah. to sort of knife something out of there. I was like, I don't I don't think I understand that component sure so so let me try <laughs> let's see if that'll make any sense um i mean a lot of times if you we try i'll say we i'll join the the group but you try to kind of come up with a- analogies to other things that people could you know wrap their their head around so the knife idea is at a certain stage of the experiment after you've gotten already very 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 cold um there's a place where we then um start exposing the atom or this the, these atoms or this trap of atoms to uh, RF, so radio frequency waves. Those radio frequency waves, we try to use a very sharp uh, resonance that cuts out, and that's where the knife comes from, cuts out these hottest atoms that are left in kind of the, the tail of, of this Boltzmann distribution, that you'd have this thermal cloud. It okay. means it has uh, some, some, some of the atoms in there are moving slower relative to others. And the ones that are moving around the fastest have s- reached certain parts of the trap where they'll be resonant with this radio frequency. And so as we, as we change or sweep that uh, radio frequency, we're kind of cutting away, on- slicing away only the hottest group of atoms. And then you're left with a, on average, colder sample. And so this RF knife, as we call it, is that kind of cutting, you know, think of it as just slicing away smaller and smaller little subgroups of the hot atoms leaving just enough time to rethermalize, get colder, and then you're cutting away and more. And it's it's uh, forced evaporation is another term for this general process, which means instead of like if you make your coffee or your tea and you leave it on your table, you're going to see some of the yeah some of it kind of you know r- rise up, and you know that in another five minutes it's going to be cooler, and then in another five minutes it's going to be room temp. So. That's a form of natural evaporation if we kind of speed up that process and specifically pull out the hottest atoms that are involved, then it's going to get colder faster. So that's basically what we do. But we do that at the cost of atoms. So you're cutting away your number and you're getting smaller and smaller clouds Mm -hmm. uh, and colder. What's the differentiation between, uh, I always think like when you reference the steam coming out, that all of those particles are at the exact same temperature, and therefore that's why they're at this level, they rise to this height, so to speak. Uh, But they could be right next to each other and be, I guess you get on the micro level. Yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, I think at some point, so if you want to kind of classify it more coarsely, you've got some... um, some temperature of your liquid on average, right? But of course, I mean, also because of because we're on the ground and have gravity, mm-hmm. you have something that that basically the hottest atoms tend to usually rise to the top, and the coldest tend to go to the bottom. And that's because of that has to do more with like the density. If you've ha- if you have a certain group of atoms that are colder, they tend to be a little more compact, mm-hmm. and that means they're denser. That tends to mean that they because of this. Net because of this gravity presence, they tend to be lower and pulled down further, and the hotter ones are allowed to be up higher. Okay. So the ones that are at the top of your tea or coffee, depending on what you what you like, <laughs> um, those are the ones that are gonna be just hot enough that they'll they may even cross this transition and then become vapor as opposed to just a, staying a liquid. And then those are gonna rise up. And so, yes, being near each other, they're gonna be ballpark about the same temperature. But then there's all these other nuances of it depends on the 
airflow in the room and and mm-hmm. other things. So yeah, you have these wispy steam kind of flying up, but there's different pockets where they're going to be at slightly different temperatures, and we're talking like fractions of degrees and stuff like yeah. that. But that all the governs the dynamics of how this thing kind of rises up or flows out of there. And now with our little clouds, we've kind of purposely put them in these little magnetic bottles. So they're kind of in a, you can still think of it as like a little bowl or a glass, almost like a liquid. I mean, it is a, um, it is a fluid, it's a gas instead of liquid, but, um, they all, we, we like to kind of put a tag on them for most part they're all at about the same temperature but temperature does follow these thermodynamics and they'll have kind of a spread it's not going to be exactly the same momentum for all the particles Mm -hmm. and so really temperature is sort of that uh sense of like how much they're wiggling around how much momentum they have um uh with with large scale like number scale so if you have statistically this is sort of the effective um it's a characteristic of a gas or an ensemble of atoms and so i don't even now i'm trying to remember where we were going with that but basically the the fact that in this cloud we control it in a way in the trap that they do tend to we can make better predictions about the temperature uh, because it's of certain symmetries and things whereas like our everyday life, you know, mug of coffee and other things. And if you've poured some cream in it and it's mixed around, yeah, you're going to get a little bit of uh, variation on yeah. your temperature, of course, in your, in, in your, <laughs> nothing comes carat. in fully homogenized. Yes, exactly. So even in these sort of systems, you get these um, uh, profile, you know, it's not all one exact temperature until you get very, very, very cold and you can, kind of form the uh, at a quantum kind of scale of things you can start forming one of the things that cal does is make these bose einstein condensations and so the idea there is with um a certain type of particle like a we call it a boson um you can if you get enough of them in a given ground state a very let's say we'll just say a, a state so this is the condition they're under in terms of their location their momentum once you have n number of them so a large number of them the next one that kind of joins the system there is a probability a much higher probability that it that it joins the same state and so you can kind of we basically can make these conditions as we get colder and colder that the next set of atoms rather than just still live in the tails or kind of up with a higher temperature they tend to all jump together into the same uh state and then you get one coherent um sort of blob of of that's uh, still made up of lots of different atoms but now they're all it's sort of indistinguishable it's one kind of in phase with itself um system i right. had some thoughts when you were discussing um the atoms coming in and how to sort yeah, of corral sure. them arrange them the, the fluid state the temperature drop getting down there near like absolute zero which is in the kelvin scale mm-hmm. um when you're bringing them in, yeah. so one thought I had was, say that going back to the coffee cup, you have sure. hot coffee and you put in some cream. Sure. Say that you could, you know, robotically recreate the exact amount of cream you're putting in, in the exact way, in the same space. Would it, If you did it so many times, could you start to get a, a, 
a map or a profile of like these are this is how hmm. those things are going to interact to a level where maybe you started taking fingerprints of each time you poured it in and would they look relatively similar or is it always just chaos i think that's a, no this is a good question so i think by the time we're talking about macro scale things like it, if it is the mug of coffee mm-hmm. there are now so many small factors that but that will completely change the way for instance i've so this is the unfortunate the, the true physicist in me has been sort of mesmerized at times so this is the slightly embarrassing part but like you pour i don't know if you've ever done this but you'll pour some cream into your coffee i only like a little bit i don't mm-hmm. put it down in and i've seen before and it's really only happened one it was one time probably mainly but it'll start to almost oscillate you'll pour that cream in you'll get this little clump of it and it'll kind of go down disappear but then come up on the other <laughs> side peak up and then go down and come back to the other side and so I've seen this sometimes. And so now it's not like a, a thing every morning that I'm trying to get it to do this. Usually I'm, I'm kind of uh, not paying attention in the morning. Um, but the the fact that like you can look at that and each day and kind of blop it in the same way and you're not going to really get the same pattern or the same behavior because it depends on the room temp. It depends on the mug you're using and the shape of that mug. But as you were getting, if you really controlled your system, right, mm-hmm. if you got you wanted to get everything – your conditions all the same. I think you could, in principle, have a and and plop in with the same exact spout of cream yeah. and the same amount, and you could start to develop sort of um, a library of all these different ways that that flowed in and then behaved. And yet, there's a lot of there's a lot of chaotic. We call it chaotic um, because you can't really know everything about that large macro state, but. Just to bring it back to the cold atoms, what we were trying to do in these systems is is very well controlled mm-hmm. introduction of other forces or the way we move move the cloud around in its magnetic trap um, or introduce other atoms. So Cal has two different uh, atomic species we call them, um, but it's really just two elements. It has rubidium and it has potassium. So if you can control the density. And those temperatures and the number, you know, so the number of atoms and exactly the trap shapes. And with these types of systems, the precision of kind of getting the magnetic trap with an exact trap frequency, or we'll think of that as like how tight the trap is or how Mm -hmm. wide or relaxed it is, you can start to kind of, because you've controlled those so much, you really can learn those patterns of, you know, what the physics is going on because it's not as chaotic you've kind of controlled your system parameters a lot better than what you can do in your mug and with your you know spout of coffee and i don't know that i'm fully tracking along with the (laughs) (laughs) the actual trap what i'm envisioning oh yeah sir i can i can try but please go ahead tell me what you're envisioning because i'm curious when you mentioned like the size of a cooler or something Hmm. i'm trying to picture how you have this little space how the the gases rubidium or potassium are being injected into it or or put in this space how you're monitoring it watching it sure. is it glass or you just oh yeah okay so let's there? see um and interrupt in as we go because i'll just start oh, going into all pleasure. the yeah <laughs> all of the instrument details and you don't want all that uh when i say it's like an ice chest so think of like uh you've gone into uh the nearby gas station thing and you need to pick up your bag of ice and so mm-hmm. you'll go outside and open up that big co- so it's a big one it's not like what you're gonna have at home or at the beach oh, right. or something right it's a yeah. big and well, you did the slide thing like the yeah. push it back yeah not, you push not, it back and lift it yeah yeah, yeah. okay okay so and that's only because uh it's it, this is also 
already very small, but this is compared to what we usually work with. But this is a, still a bulky, you know, system because what we're putting in there are, oh man, I should already know the numbers, but it's like um, seven different laser sources. So we have three three laser uh, lasers for each species, plus an extra one to do some atom interferometry. We have amplifiers, so we call these, ta- you know, basically they're amplifying the light, um, and there's you know, a, a whole drawer of uh, electronics that then control all these lasers. There's then another whole set of things that control the little, uh, we call them current drivers, but they're basically the power supplies for all, how we make these magnetic fields, how we make those electromagnets. So far, if someone were to just listen to this part, yeah. I think it'd be reasonable to think, if they just tuned in, they're like, am I listening to a Pink Floyd techie talk about how they do the light show? Yeah, we, we can, uh, other than the fact that these are all near-infrared and so barely visible, mm-hmm. technically they're not visible, but if you get enough of this, it looks like little red light. Um, yeah, there's enough, there's a lot of power going on, and we distribute it all through little optical fibers in order to, I mean, this is this is a way to kind of do your splitting and, and traveling through to get to the other side of this ice chest, for example. Yeah. So where where the atoms get cooled is on kind of one side of this this um, chain, this apparatus, and it's it is true that like everything starts to be compartmentalized. If you think of it, the little cell that we put them in is only an inch, kind of a square inch, and a few inches tall. It's a little glass cell, mm-hmm. and we call these like a cuvette because it's a little square kind of rectangular like chamber. It. Yeah, cuvette. The cuvette. <laughs> and the top of this little cuvette is um, formed, like the ceiling of it is formed by a semiconductor chip. So something kind of similar to what's in your laptop here. Um, uh, that, but instead of using it in the traditional way, we're basically running tiny bit. Well, we're running amps of current through these super small, tiny wires. And when you run this much current through the wires, or really any current through wires, you'll get magnetic fields that form kind of loops around the wire. And you can then add in extra, like kind of extra fields around with other coils and combos of uh, depends on your geometries. But you can make these little tunnels for the atoms to live in, or these are the propagate. traps. These are the traps. Okay. And so um, then you can make whether it's a long line of uh, like a little, like I said, described a tunnel, or you can then shape them if you start. If you imagine instead of one long wire, you now kink it and make kind of a Z-looking shape. You can form ends to that wire and they, they, they live in the middle of that, that system. So that's the kind of, when we're talking about magnetic traps, we're basically running current through regular copper wires or in this other case of sort of fancier one on a chip. And then um, it forms these really tight magnetic fields and those magnetic fields are what, um, what hold the atoms. There's little forces that the atoms will feel because they're in a higher field. They tend to go some certain states of the atoms will go back towards the weaker part, like the lower fields. And then the real trick is just getting them into that magnetic trap to begin with, because it's a, what we'll call call a conservative potential, meaning, um, yeah, energy is conserved when you get in there. It's not being pulled out with any, unless you start adding other light or other things. So we do something at the very beginning of all this called laser cooling. That's mm-hmm. why you heard all about all the lasers we have. Because To we, interrupt yeah. real quickly, though. Yeah, yeah, and, please. And the, the idea of a trap, 
Does it feel, do you, when you're watching this and maybe you go, we didn't get any in our trap, do, mm. do you start to personify them a little bit or give, like, oh, they almost like they border on consciousness. Like, like little, they were too wily. They didn't yeah, fall yeah. for that trap. Yeah, no, we usually, in fact, depending on the atom too, like rubidium has been kind of become a kind of workhorse for the field. <laughs> like it's been a convenient atom. It mm. has certain resonance. It has certain behaviors that like make it kind of the go-to one. I mean, people might argue there's a couple others. But so that would mean if it's a workhorse and, and predictable, then others are a little bit more diva-ish? That's, yeah, yeah. So potassium, for example, this is where I was getting at, is is finicky. And, <laughs> and so, yes, it's maybe it's more diva-ish or it's a lighter atom and it has some different structure of the way the electronic states work and stuff in it. In our experience, we're trying to, basically, we cool the potassium using rubidium. So you, we call it sympathetic cooling. We put a we use our our go-to uh, species. I also don't know why, but we've always called them species, but it's an element. We use the rubidium. We make a bunch of it. It's cold. And by putting a little bit of potassium in there with it, it's also a gas. Mm-hmm. But they will knock into each other. And so sympathetically, in a sense, the potassium will get to the same temperature. You know, get cooled by the rubidium that's around it. So we need to... Well, in other, other groups and other systems, you could directly cool and do a lot more maybe with just pure potassium. We're, we're using this method where we try to sympathetically cool it. So basically, excuse me. So then um, with, uh, with something like potassium, I know there's been remarks where we'll be in the lab and trying to work on this for hours or whatever. And yes, there'll be little tiny exclamations of almost personifying the thing as usually it's not necessarily in a positive way but um get in there you little jerk <laughs> things like that yeah like, yeah, ah, yeah. This things being difficult today right. yeah so usually it's like we're blaming the whole system it's not necessarily adam's fault right we try to <laughs> but the so <coughs> to use our and i don't I don't think we've uh, said that this is a good analogy, but it's one we've been working from, the yeah. coffee cup with yeah, the cream sure. going yeah, in. Yeah, no, that's great. You can kind of expect when you pour in the cream some level of like a cloudish yeah. infiltration. Right, right. When you're not seeing what you expect to see, is it the equivalent of pouring in cream and then just seeing it disappear or something? Like, that shouldn't be happening. Is it ever that baffling? E- yes, sometimes we've had cases where and usually that's a sign that something in your system wasn't behaving right so all this stuff requires like let's say locking the lasers down to a very precise color or uh-huh. freak you know wavelength or frequency and so sometimes it's just a sign that yep this must not have been the our electronics and our system that was locking it and we're convinced this is working one out of a hundred times or something i i hope it's even lower than that um it may not be locked to the right place so then when you go and kind of push your buttons to do what you just did a minute ago and mm. it should make uh make the cloud appear the way you expect and then you don't get it it probably means something in your system just wandered off its course and yeah. didn't do the right job sometimes it's even more interesting though because you are pushing to the next kind of stage of the experiment whether you're cooling it in a different method or you're moving it with the magnetic fields a little differently and you start to see images of these atoms that are odd and that that is always that is sometimes what at least at least for me but probably most um, scientists you're kind of looking for you might have set off to do this particular measurement and usually you're going to get there 
um, with your hypothesis and so forth. But a lot of times, some of the interesting science comes from those tangents that like, whoa, what is, what is that? That is a new thing that I was not expecting. <laughs> and sometimes that's, like I said, some parameter you weren't, you thought you were controlling, you yeah. didn't. But other times there is something unique there. And really? that's sometimes, that's the kind of fun stuff, I think, or, or at least even getting to the bottom of that. Sometimes, you know, the, the troubleshooting involved to understand, was this something physics and interest? Well, everything's physics, but was it something new, you know, or, or in, interesting about the, at an atomic level, or was this just like, oh, I forgot to turn that thing on. <laughs> when, it, when it feels certain that you did turn everything on and this happens, yep. and the people you work with, I'm assuming largely are very pragmatic physicists, scientists who are not often mystified, but does it ever creep in there where people kind of look around and go, what, what does this mean? Oh yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. And that's where I think we're all like you, maybe sometimes that's out of an optimism, right? You want there to be sometimes some, some new, Mm -hmm. new thing. So there, there are times when you get that new, uh, behavior or something that then you're, you look at each other and start to wonder what, what is, what is going on here? That's, (laughs) could that be this? And then, uh, and that, that also happened a little bit with us once we got to, um, the micro, you know, in once we're on the ISS and doing kind of the same things we were doing daily on the ground, mm-hmm. there are different types of um, the imaging you're going to get. Just for one, the atoms don't fall off your screen while you're trying to image them, um, which is the reason to go there. So of course we expect that, but it is kind of novel even just to to hold them for a long time or release them for a long time and then you were so used to always seeing them travel across the camera view and now they just, you know, slightly grow, but never move, you know, not mm-hmm. moving and translating. So those, those kind of things or, or other sort of nuanced effects because they are not falling off the screen that you still see some, some shapes and things that you weren't expecting. And those are fun. Yeah, we do yeah. look, there is the looking around at each other and going, huh, that's, <laughs> that's going to be something. Well, a hundred days up there, you've, you've run these tests, you've, put them in the traps i was assuming many 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 times yeah and are um, there still new kind of fingerprints for lack of a better term showing up profiles of oh the yeah. behaviors so um yeah we're now probably even well so basically the 100 days or so it wasn't literally that number that marked it but we basically moved from a, what we call the commissioning phase where we're trying to um calibrate your system up there if you so to speak on and, and understand the limits of it and get kind of get your ducks in a row uh, then we entered into like a science phase. So basically now what we're doing and Cal was always intended, this is the main purpose of it is to be a multi-user facility. So basically we have different investigators from around the world, primarily U.S., but there's some co-investigators from Germany and, and other parts that um, that will each kind of trade off. They have like a week or a couple of weeks and um, give us sort of their what do I want to say? We're the operators of it, but they basically come up with their new path of how they want, what they do want to explore in particular with this system. And we trade off with these different PIs and kind of go down these a few, quite a few different paths. So, so far we're, man, um, I lose track of the weeks, but we're at least six weeks into it. Um, so we've worked with uh, three or four different, different forms of these experiments. And because of this, we are ex- doing exactly what you said. Like we're, each one is kind of looking into something different. There's some overlap, so we're building off of each other. But mm-hmm. uh, we are going down into like looking at different, uh, basically turning different knobs of the system, changing those those um, uh, parameters, and then seeing different 
behaviors uh, by design, you know, for, for yeah. these different purposes, whether that's working with kind of different shapes of traps as we were getting at. Um, usually we're doing them in kind of a traditional, we call it a harmonic trap. So it looks like a parabola, mm-hmm. um, but you can do things where you turn on these radio frequencies and make a dress state where it looks more like a bubble. So it starts to form like a shell structure or only like the perimeter is filled, not the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and others, others are basically trying to do very controlled, slow ramping down to weak fields. So instead of it being, instead of it being just a tight parabola that ho- definitely holds the atoms because it's very t- um, steep slopes on the edges, you can you can go to very weak traps where it's almost flattening out completely. And when it's ultimately flat, that really is free fall. That is no more forces affecting it. So you can get very, very close to this condition, get very low density clouds. And they're kind of looking into getting these ultra cold. Well, we're already considered ultra cold, very, very, very cold systems. And that's where like, it's been, you know, it's the coolest, the coolest experiment on the ISS, so (laughs) to speak. And we're trying to reach towards these, um, effectively, um, colder temperatures than we've gotten on the ground do you guys use the term enthalpy a lot enthalpy um no okay good (laughs) (laughs) but like entropy and like i mean the idea we're they're basically in those systems once we've already made them into this condensed matter so it's less um this quantum state the way they expand is now different than a thermal cloud and so we can kind of look we can drop these things well we say drop we let go of these things in space and they they will then kind of grow. If you watch them over time, you'll just see the the size kind of grow. And you take these images at different points after you've after uh, releasing them. And at some point, it's sort of not even really considered temperature anymore because they're not interacting the way that you've defined temperature typically. But their motion relative to each other, how much they spread, we can kind of assign an effective temperature, meaning they're now moving, you know, um, if this was if this was a cloud of atoms that were interacting, this is the effective temperature they'd be at, which is, you know, down below nano kelvins. So we're mm-hmm. talking about when you mentioned absolute zero, this is down at the, think of like nine zeros past the decimal point right, yeah, that we're yeah. getting into. So pico kelvin regime. Pico kelvin regime. Yeah, pico kelvin would be the you know there's nano and then the next. Ah. Uh, next three orders of magnitude down would be pico kelvin oh okay i didn't know that yeah uh <laughs> or i i'm sure at some point i've or, heard and that then femto and... would be the next or, yeah oh so yeah. would you <laughs> we're not there yet we're not there but yet. but aiming to get to femto kelvin we'll be very happy with the 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 10 pico kelvin regime or if we ever get to single pico kelvin that'd be pretty good as soon as you so what we tend to do uh in engineering and physics is to take credit for as soon as you enter into the like a te- so if you're a tenth of a micron, let's mm-hmm. say we'll do distances right now, a micrometer, mm-hmm. usually you start to talk about like nanometer scale because mm-hmm. now that's like hundreds of nanometer. You could, you know, so yeah, if we could ever get to the sub pico Kelvin, as soon as it enters that, yeah, we've done fem- femto, <laughs> femto Kelvin. Sweet. <laughs> when someone hears, um, hey, you know, the space station is, uh, there's microgravity conditions. Yep. Let us know your ideas. Who is it that goes, you know what I've always wanted to, is it a consensus or is it someone being like, and are you, tr- is, is the end goal to know more about quantum mechanics and understanding yeah. the weak force and, and kind of the things that don't give us a unified thing? Sure. Yeah. No, there's a, and there's a few sides to this. So, um, basically even, so going back just 
this the BEC, so we usually just use the acronym, but this Bose-Einstein compensation, the physicists Bose and Einstein had had kind of theorized that there's if you get enough of these bosons together, those the certain spin particles, integer spin, they will collapse kind of all into the same um, state mm-hmm. and form. This is condensed, right? So this is where this kind of coined from. So that that didn't get experimentally realized until the '90s. And very quickly became, um, for instance, Nobel Prize winning physics. So between laser cooling and then another Nobel Prize uh, year, years later for forming the BECs. And it was recognized right away, though, that getting to like a, like one avenue to take this to get more out of it was to go to a microgravity situation where instead of, I was describing to you that little glass cell, it's only inches in size. Now, some people have gone through other great efforts to make, um, you know, meters long chambers that are, you know, so it's a vacuum chamber. We have to make all this stuff in and that way you could drop it and it can fall or you could, uh, do these, we call them fountains cause you're launching it up and then it falls back down. You at least get twice as much time. Mm-hmm. And then in, in, um, Bremen, uh, Germany, for example, they have a whole drop tower where they basically have evacuated a huge tower and they can drop their entire experiments. So you take this maybe something like the ice chest or uh, more like a refrigerator and just drop it and it falls and then they can do these studies for seconds on the second scale. Um, So it was kind of always recognized going back 20, 30 years ago that like there are some major advantages to do these kind of laser cooling and cold atom studies in space um, Mm -hmm. because some of the measurements really do benefit from uh, that the interrogation time, the time scale that you let them free ex- freely expand and then measure them again, you can gain a lot more sensitivity to other forces and stuff. If we're trying to measure, um, for instance, gravity or uh, electric fields or even applications of like you may have heard of atomic clock and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, or now now gravity waves and all these other even you know more more intriguing ideas of measuring forces. So. Um, going back, there was actually a big program and it was specifically meant for the ISS back in like the early 2000s to, mm-hmm. to put these types of things up there. And then it kind of fizzled out in terms of it's probably funding and, and other things that just kind of dried up a bit and it didn't, didn't happen back in there. So when this second wave, almost like a new life to the ISS came around, it was a natural a natural area to go into. But then the next question is, okay, now it's been another decade almost. Yeah. What is going to be the real, um, focus of it? And what Cal did instead of it having just one specific focus was how about we make a system that does have a lot of different knobs to turn, so to speak. And then that means we can solicit from around the, make it more of a collaboration what are the different types of studies that people want to do when you when you have cold atoms up there and you have maybe two different types mm-hmm. um, or different types of radio frequencies and microwave frequencies and magnetic fields and so forth. So, excuse me. Um, so basically, uh, yeah, that was kind of the idea behind it is to become, instead of, I kind of think of it like instead of a telescope that's going to look out, you mm-hmm. know, and peer out and then a lot of different P- PIs principal investigators will work on it and look at different parts of the sky and so forth. Cal is kind of an instrument that's looking inward on itself, but it is probing these different kind of 
behaviors at the quantum level and, and making mole- certain molecule formation mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So. How, how will you know when you have enough data? Oh, there's never enough data. Never? <laughs> just until you can... <laughs> no, part of it is, I mean, just in terms of more formally what's been proposed, it's, uh, it's a three-year mission. Um, I think the idea was it can do, it's supposed to kind of set out to do one year's worth of science. And then there are parts of the system that we naturally expect can degrade over time. And so there, there are some parts that can be interchanged because it's on the ISS. Uh, the way it got installed, for instance, astronauts take it out of the, um, the vessel that brought it up there. And then they put it into this, like we call it an express rack. It's basically like an equipment rack you might see on the ground, but it's a little more specialized and it has power and water and air cooling. And Mm -hmm. so they install it. And then in fact, we've had a few follow-ups where we do some ops with them, uh, where they're looking at fibers and changing some of the cabling that's on the outside. And, and so these, we have these things, they, everything in NASA, they like the acronym. So it's called ORUs. Those are orbital replacement units. Mm-hmm. And we basically sent up a bag, <laughs> like a, a, in a fancy way, it's a fancy bag, a bag of lasers <laughs> and other it's electronics. A, it's the fanciest of bags. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> um, and uh, all of those are now stored up there. And if we have trouble with a particular laser or something, the idea is that it could be uh, things are modular on that system that they can slide out a certain drawer and disassemble it and put on, you know, put a new, new unit on there. Cause I was going to bring up, I'm trying to think of an analogy of like, if you had a tree house and you had to go out in your backyard and climb up some, you know, two by fours that were tacked onto the tree. And then you hauled up some extension cords and you plugged in a TV mm-hmm. and you went to turn it on and then realized like, Oh dang it. I forgot something. Right. And you had to go check all the cords. That's still a pain. Oh but yeah. At least just going into your house through yeah, the yeah, is not yeah. like going into Oh no, space. we've learned everything up. Everything that you need to do up there is, 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 <laughs> is a hassle. So even doing some, so some routines that we would have done on the ground when we were prepping this, for instance, with some optical fibers, mm-hmm. they might take us a half hour. Um, we're, well, we're also used to it, but as opposed to an astronaut isn't specifically trained on that, that type of job. Yeah. Um, so we have to, you know, come up with procedures and write everything up. And even then we learn that it's not that they necessarily follow every step and want to read it off. That time is, time is money. They have, a, they have very focused in terms of what their schedule is like up there from mm-hmm. day to day. So at least for me, it was eye opening to see that, yeah, they want you to, we'll basically be on the loop with them and talking and, um, they'll have that procedure, but you're basically talking them through certain steps and, um, yeah, getting all of the paperwork done and getting, knowing what time they're going to be scheduled for it. And then you run into silly things. Like you might find that the battery didn't <laughs> stay charged the whole time on the laptop that you're going to use yeah. or things like that, that normally, again, like you said, Oh, oops, I forgot this. I better go in and get it. When you get that during a, uh, you know, an operation that with astronauts, it's a little more complicated. So <laughs> has we've anything had, ever been like, well, we missed it this window and now we're yeah, just really, yeah, we've had some things where, um, the particular operation didn't go as planned. And then by the time you need to reschedule that you're waiting another few weeks or something, even if it's maybe just an hour long thing, but it's cause they are very busy with many different types of experiments and things up there. Uh-huh. Um, so it's not just like, I mean, this one, this particular one has gotten a lot of attention and they've put in certain priorities and we've been, we've been very lucky to have, Mm -hmm. have kind of the, the 
astronauts up there to be able to do these things because <laughs> some stuff seems like i said we're used to it we do it on the ground in our lab but to do these procedures that then turn into three different two to three hour long you know uh, mm-hmm. installations or, or repairs yeah. or something but so that's also give us that is eye-opening for whether i described to you these ors it would be a much more complicated process to take apart the system and put in a new you know yeah. laser or a new computer card or something like that even though we could probably do that or every day some people could do that kind of on the ground you know fix their computer or whatever but yeah it's it's, I think it's messier of, when you're in when you're floating around and there's a lot of other limits in terms of getting certain tooling up there and mm-hmm. devices and stuff like that if you ever live outside of a, a town even not just a major city and uh, everything's yeah. there where you're like okay i'm taking i'm doing a town day i'm going to the bank i'm doing this getting groceries all the things that it takes a big effort you know maybe it's an hour drive or whatnot the pressure to get all those errands done and if someone adds hey when you're there can you pick this up for me that's kind of the equivalent to a certain degree you guys are saying hey when you're up there yeah. can you make sure our thing is working? <laughs> yeah yeah, please. Oh, by the way, just uh, just loosen that a little bit and then tighten it again. I think that might help. Yeah, these are. Does anyone yeah. have anything to add? I'm going yeah, to yeah, space. Yeah. So <laughs> the requests are over. And then you go. Can you feed my cat? Get up there. <laughs> uh, hey, how's this uh, citrus wheat treating you? It's good. It's good stuff. Um, how about we refill a little bit and pick up again? Okay, sounds good. Well, were you able to follow along? I hope so. Pretty intense stuff, and yet he does a great job of uh, dumbing it down. Not to use that term in the pejorative sense, but really, there's no other way to describe it. I was doing my best to keep up, and I, I think I understood it on the uh, in in the broad sense of things. But some of the specifics, I don't know that it's possible for a non-physicist uh, type person to fully grasp that, but I hope you did. In part two, we get into um, more of the kind of philosophical side of physics and the universe and the world and all of that stuff, so hopefully you'll come back for that and more of the citrus wheat from Angel City. Uh, if you'd like to contribute to this show in any way, it's uh, it's December as we record this. Probably should do some sort of a holiday drive or something, try to raise some money. Typically I do. Keep an eye on my website. There might be some sort of... Um, if nothing else, like a Professor Blastoff uh, t-shirt thing or something like that. Otherwise, you can always uh, donate at thespacecave.com. There's just a donate button if you want to contribute a beer or something like that for an episode. Uh, if you'd like to be a more regular contributor, you can uh, sign up for the Patreon where you get bonus episodes. For as little as $2 a month, you can get access to an extra episode per month and various little behind-the-scenes things from what I've got going on and stuff like that. So... Thanks to those of you who do support the show. It is made possible from contributions from listeners just like you. Ideally, this show is ad-free beyond this little spiel of mine here. And thanks again, as always, to Dan for compiling the show and Rob Crow for doing the beautiful theme song. Get you settled in, nestled into this little uh, domain of ours that we all share. So thanks for being a part of it. Hope you have a good week out there. Good luck to all of you. This is a song from... uh, this new album by Wild Nothing's really good. It's called Indigo. This song's called Letting Go. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave. It's getting hard for me to reframe all those shifting memories like a music box that never stops dancing by.